Welcome to the Energy Central Power Perspectives podcast. This is the show that brings leading minds from the energy industry to discuss the challenges and trends that are transforming and modernizing our energy system. And a quick thank you to Wes Monroe, our sponsor of today's show. Now, let's talk energy. I'm Jason Price, Energy Central Podcast host and director with West Monroe, coming to you from New York City. And with me, as always, from Orlando, Florida, is Energy Central producer and community manager, Matt Chester. Matt, we're recording and publishing this podcast episode during the approach to National Hydrogen and Fuel Cell Day. If any of our listeners haven't yet added this event to their calendars, can you share a bit about the history and meaning behind Hydrogen and Fuel Cell Day? Yeah, I'd be happy to, Jason. And the fun bit of trivia is that Hydrogen and Fuel Cell Day falls on October 8th to align with the atomic weight of hydrogen, 1.008 AMU, thus the date 1008. Uh, and while the day chose, is chosen in, in this kind of cheeky manner, the, the recognition is quite serious. The first National Hydrogen and Fuel Cell Day was recognized in 2015, uh, as noted by a declaration of the U.S. Senate to highlight the important role of hydrogen energy in transforming the industry today and into the future, from things like hydrogen transportation to its uh, use as energy storage to mixing it in with natural gas supplies and more. Leaders from across the energy landscape use 1008 as a good reason to remind us all of the possibilities of hydrogen energy and to recognize the great work being done by scientists, researchers, policymakers, and other stakeholders in this hydrogen space. Thanks for that, Matt. And to recognize this important area of the energy industry, we couldn't have a more appropriate guest for today's episode. Joining us today is Richard Boardman. Richard is the Laboratory Relationship Manager for the Fuel Cell and Hydrogen Technology Office at Idaho National Lab. In that role, Richard oversees INL's Clean Energy Platform for Integrated Energy Systems Development. And the latest application and exciting pursuit of this team is in pushing forward the opportunity for hybrid energy systems, such as the possibility of nuclear power generation to not only produce power for the grid, but to also serve to produce hydrogen fuel. Such a combination would be a major development for those both on the nuclear and the hydrogen side of the industry. So we're eager to dive in and learn more about these advancements. So let's not delay any further and let's welcome him to the conversation. Richard Boardman, welcome to the Energy Central Power Perspectives Podcast. Thank you, Jason. It's a special privilege to talk with you and Matt today about these topics, uh, which many consider as a leading opportunity to firm the grid and decarbonize our entire energy sector. Fantastic. And I'd love to start by hearing more about the overall role you and your team play at INL. What are the goals of the Fuel Cell and Hydrogen Technology Office, and what sort of successful engagements would resonate with our utility audience? Well, I think uh, we at the Idaho National Laboratory, you, Matt, and Jason, and, and uh, our utility audience would all resonate around one principle. We need energy security. And we can have energy security with hydrogen and nuclear energy. It comes back to making hydrogen, moving it, using that hydrogen, uh, specifically clean hydrogen that does not result in pollutant emissions. So there's a couple of principles here I could uh, point out. And first of all, I think uh, clean hydrogen, it requires an affordable source of clean energy. 
which may be renewables. And in our view, in our role, it would be nuclear energy. Second, uh, it's important to advance technologies to be able to split water. You can get hydrogen from uh, hydrocarbons. Methane is one of those. You can get it from splitting water. These are the two principal sources for hydrogen in our universe. And we need electricity if we're going to split water. And sometimes we can use thermal energy, and I'll point that out to perhaps in our conversation today. And we can get that thermal energy from power plants, nuclear plants. They produce thermal energy, and that thermal energy is put into electricity. Third, you know, putting hydrogen into energy currencies is very important to us. Hydrogen itself is a fuel, and it can be used in the transportation industry, and it's used by industry for a number of processes. But we can talk about how we can put it into specific currencies, which allow us to transport that clean energy around. And four, and important here for our utility audience, is that uh, hydrogen can be used for power generation. I think most people realize that the fuel cells have been developed and they can burn hydrogen and turn that hydrogen back into electricity. And it can also be burned in turbines. A uh, number of companies, including our own U.S. Uh, General Electric, is working on hydrogen burning turbines. They have been for a couple of decades, and it's exciting that now that technology and the materials are coming forward so we can burn it in turbines, just like natural gas is burned in turbines to make electricity. Yeah, I appreciate that. And so, you know, in the lead up, we talked about how uh, we're approaching the National Hydrogen Fuel Cell Day on October 8th. So I want to drill down a little bit further in the hydrogen conversation. And as you know, our Energy Central listeners are primarily from the utilities, so they may not have direct exposure to the hydrogen economy or what hydrogen activities as much as perhaps um, you would think. So can you give us a peek behind the curtain from the front lines? How has the hydrogen economy technology advanced in recent years and what makes us on the cusp of something critical? You know, that's a very good question. Uh, we've understood that we can split water or we can abstract the hydrogen off of methane and, and to produce this hydrogen that I talked about earlier here. But what's happened now in recent years is that there's been a, a strong focus on developing both fuel cells that burn hydrogen and electrolysis cells that can split that water to make that hydrogen. Some recent uh, material advancements include uh, proton conducting membranes. Uh, some are polymeric and those can be used to just split water itself. Electricity and Using those polymeric exchange membranes, you can split the water and get the hydrogen and its counterpart oxygen. But there have been great advancements made in high temperature electrolysis, also using a proton exchange membrane. But in this case, it's a solid electrolyte material. Several companies uh, around the world and research universities have been working towards this solid oxide electrolysis format, made great advancements in that. And uh, maybe we'll get a chance to talk a little bit more about that here today. But if you visited uh, a company out there, there's several in the U.S., you would now see that they're operating fuel cells around the world and, and uh, converting, in this case, natural gas into electricity and working on using those uh, same fuel cell formats to burn hydrogen to convert it into electricity. So that's changed. Fuel cells have advanced in part because the endeavors and efforts and focus of the fuel cell Technology Office here. It's now called the Hydrogen and Fuel Cell Technology Office. They've added hydrogen to that because it's become an important uh, part of the program. And so, as I mentioned, hydrogen, we start to realize that hydrogen is really a very important element and can be formulated into 
other energy currencies like ammonia or methanol. It's always used for hydro-treating and hydro-cracking uh, petroleum fuels, but it can also be used to make biofuels. And interestingly enough, hydrogen is now recognized as a key uh, reductant in making steel. When we dig up iron ore, that's iron oxide. Traditionally, we've reduced that iron oxide with using coal and natural gas, but hydrogen is a great way also to reduce it. And when we use that hydrogen and reduce steel, for example, no emissions. So all of this pulls back to these energy currencies, pulls back to these energy conversion technologies, this electrolysis, pulls it back to our energy source, and there we are. We're back to the utilities. We're back to the energy sources of uh, clean power. That's really interesting. Let's explore this hybrid notion here. So, you know, your team is working hard at marrying the world of hydrogen with nuclear power. So talk to us about how hydrogen can be seen as a new outlet for nuclear power. Well, it can have several roles here, but I think the most important one is to recognize that the grid is evolving. And we're all aware that we're building up renewable energy, wind, and solar energy. And uh, as we build out those energy sources, uh, they tend to bid and, and get put on the grid first because there's no cost in fuel. When the sun shines, the solar panels run, the, uh, when the wind blows, the wind turbines turn. And so that at that point in time, that's the cheapest electricity. So we put that on the grid first. What that tends to do is to squeeze those baseload generators like nuclear plants. And so now they have to start to curtail. So this is not a bad thing if we understand how we could use that uh, electricity or that power that would otherwise be lost if we curtailed it. So we call this flexible plant operations and generation. And one of the, the uh, Department of Energy's uh, programs under nuclear energy is called the Light Water Reactor Sustainability Program. The intent here is to keep our fleet of uh, existing reactors operating because we help them understand uh, how to participate in markets that now be changing. And uh, as I said, uh, to operate flexibly. Well, we realized early on that uh, using that power that would not be going to the grid to produce hydrogen would be a good way to keep those plants running at their nameplate capacities. So they're always producing that clean energy that they're capable of doing. Now we're giving them a second market and that's to make hydrogen. So this is simple as routing the power from the grid over to the hydrogen plant. And the hydrogen plant is these electrolysis plants that require electricity and, and can also use thermal energy if we're doing the high temperature electrolysis. So what we've been about is working with several of the utilities, the nuclear plant owners and operators to investigate and to analyze how we might be able to open up this new market in making hydrogen. Is there really a business case for doing that? We started uh, several years ago working with some of these utilities throughout the United States to understand whether or not we could have a second market and that be economically viable. We call that a technical and an economic assessment. So we worked with a number of these utilities and these nuclear plant operators to do some initial studies. And uh, the early results were that it, it looked like it was a strong possibility. We could create this second market where those nuclear plants could switch over to making hydrogen. And then it's off to the hydrogen markets, or they may even store that hydrogen and turn it back into electricity later in the day. 
But I wanted to say that we started off doing these technical and economic assessments, and uh, those looked quite promising. So that led us to do more work, and that was to then understand technically how we would integrate with those plants, how we'd pull the electricity out of the switchyard, how we might move thermal energy off of the power and turbine decks and over to this electrolysis plant. So we now have three or four years of uh, engaging uh, large companies, engineering and plant constructors, uh, architectural engineering firms to help us design these thermal systems, these electrical systems to get a good handle around how that would be done technically and what the associated costs would be. And so, so far, everything looks quite favorable towards uh, this potential secondary market of producing hydrogen. And so now, Matt and Jason, what I'd like to also emphasize is that that doesn't mean that that particular nuclear plant is taken away from the grid. It's still there connected to the grid. So as the sun comes up, as the wind begins to blow, as these nuclear plants flexibly move over to making hydrogen, an important uh, concept here is that they could very quickly switch back over to the electricity market. And that would be done dynamically while the hydrogen plant goes into an idle mode. That might require some hydrogen storage so that the hydrogen market can still have a steady supply. And so we've looked at those economics, uh, including storage, so that both markets can be satisfied. And I'll just stop there and answer any more questions about that if I didn't make that very clear. Yeah, I appreciate that. And I want to talk to you and ask you about the storage part of things, because whenever you talk about storage, there's a degree of arbitraging that goes on, right? Because the market, you have this... Um... A commodity that becomes available and you can use it and throttle it in times of need. So hydrogen sounds like the key to unlocking new opportunities for the nuclear sector. But I guess my question is, why does this all sound like still a bit as speculation? This technology has been around for a long time, nuclear and hydrogen. Why now start looking at this integration? And, and what are the experts at INL doing to try to bridge the gap from um, where we are and where we need to be? Those are several good questions. And I think the very first part of this is that, uh, you know, utilities are very comfortable. They're locked into the electricity market, many of them in regulated markets. And so, in fact, to a sense, the public owns those nuclear plants and, and or they own these other generation resources, whether they be the renewables. And so their first uh, criteria is to satisfy their electricity demand. So public utility commissions and others make sure that we're providing that electricity to them and, and they get compensated for the rate or the cost of doing that. And that's the market. But uh, things start to change in the market when you start to deregulate markets. And so now nuclear plants have to compete and they don't necessarily get compensated to just keep themselves operating. So it's driven by, first of all, a need for those uh, existing plant owners to make sure they have adequate revenue generation. And that uh, then is why we start to look towards secondary markets, what they can do after they participate in the electricity market. And again, that brought us back to hydrogen. And hydrogen is because it could be sold off to the large industries, the steel making, the refining, the ammonia industries, even transportation fuels. So there's a market for that hydrogen. But let me come back to the question you asked and, and uh, remarked about arbitrage and you know, I think all the utilities understand that arbitrage is just a way of uh, marketing your power or your energy that you could produce and to sell it at the times when you can get the highest value out of it. So let's explain that a little deeper. If you're 
in the middle of the day and and the electricity market is uh, taking up the renewable energy and this nuclear plant is turning down or curtailing, as I've said, then there's this opportunity to put that into energy storage and sell it later in the day. Well, what type of storage are we talking? Batteries are out there, utility-scale batteries, and they're being built and, and placed all around the country now, and they're working well, and they seem to be a cost-effective solution. We might also store that thermal energy that comes off these nuclear plants, put it in a, in a large thermal energy storage system, just about the same as the concentrating solar systems are, are storing thermal energy to turn it into power. So thermal energy storage is an option. Then comes hydrogen. And so if we're splitting water, storing that hydrogen to turn around later on in the day to burn it in fuel cells or power systems, the question is, what's the cost of making that hydrogen, storing that hydrogen, and then what's the cost of turning it back into power, whether we're using turbines or fuel cells? So this requires that we look at the whole system and we look at the time scales, whether they're hourly or they're daily, weekends or seasonal. And we begin to realize that hydrogen is a great and effective way to store especially high amounts of that energy for longer periods of time and bring it back and make electricity. So what I would like to explain here is, is that uh, hydrogen is not a solution for every situation, but it turns out that it's a solution for, for many. I would just like to point out one project that's uh, already being built. This is being built down in, in central Utah. And this is where the Los Angeles Department of Water and Power is looking to send even solar and renewable energy up the transmission line to central Utah, where there's some salt domes. And here they'll split the water and make hydrogen stored in these caverns that are in these salt domes. And then they'll call it back out of those salt domes to burn it and burn it in, in this case, power turbines and send the electrons back down to, to California. So this notion of, of arbitrage and using hydrogen to arbitrage, well, it's already making sense and to making sense to some of our utilities. So therefore, it's being explored throughout other places in the country. Idaho National Lab has been part of helping some of the utilities do those studies to understand this concept of arbitrage and the opportunity for hydrogen. So with that stated, I would just like to say that hydrogen is still very much up and viable for some situations. Yeah. Let's shift for a moment towards risk, if you don't mind. And I don't mean safety risk. I'm talking about economic risk, because these are not cheap infrastructure investments. You know, certainly a technical risk that these projects may not deliver or deliver on time or within budget. So what is your advice for approaching stakeholders in the utility sector who may still be wary of both of these uh, energy sources from an economic risk standpoint? Well, great. So, look, I, I always say that uh, we need to understand, you know, the problem and the assumptions that we make anytime we promote a solution, especially at a national scale. So I list four risks that we have to address. And in order to make this hydrogen economy, to make this hydrogen arbitrage, to make this hydrogen story really happen because it's market driven and we mitigate those risks. The first risk is you have to have an affordable, clean energy source. I mean, our purpose for getting after this, the Department of Energy's purpose in, in, in having a hydrogen economy is, of course, to help us decarbonize our economy, but that's gonna come always back to having this affordable, clean energy source. 
So as many would already understand, we have fully capitalized our nuclear plants out there. There's almost 100 of them still operating, and hopefully we'll, we won't shut down any more of those. But those, uh, those nuclear plants have become very effective in understanding how to reduce their costs of operation, first of all, to compete as well as they can in the electricity market. But recognize that uh, then some of those plants are, might have the ability to produce that hydrogen maybe 80% of the year, maybe 90% of the year, and be available for the rest of the time, 5, 10, 15% of the time to make electricity. So what we're talking about is having a high capacity of high intensity, clean energy that's available to build a large hydrogen plant. And so now we're talking economies of scale in the case of nuclear energy. Large means it'll be cheaper. Centralized means that it'll be concentrated and it can be cheaper. And having that constant clean energy source mostly available from that nuclear plant brings it all together. So that's the first assumption is affordable, clean energy that can drive a large plant to make the, economy, the, the economics work out. The second assumption is the technologies themselves. And this has really been an important aspect of this. And it's one that we continue to work on that the Hydrogen and Fuel Cell Technology Office is very much working on through Idaho National Lab and other national labs and supporting academics and supporting industry to build up manufacturing, to uh, make these electrolysis units more durable, to get higher performance out of those. So that's in the technology. And while I mentioned significant advances have been made in this area. And uh, we're able to show now that these uh, proton exchange materials and solid oxide media are, are proving to be very durable and have high performance. The next step we need to do to mitigate that risk that you're, you're asking about is to make sure the costs come down. And that can really only be done by high volume manufacturing. Oh, sure, there'll be a niche market here or a niche market there but we're really talking about a large hydrogen economy, large enough to make this you know, utility scale. And so that means we have to address assumption number three, and that is have a large market for that hydrogen. Well, the good news is, is that uh, as this has been socialized and the word has gotten out that we can produce this clean hydrogen and, and how it can be used by industries, now we start to have that industry pull. That's the market pull. That's a very, very important factor so that we can build many plants, not just one. Where we really need to be at is producing gigawatt amounts of these electrolysis units every year so that we might be converting one, two, three nuclear plants into making hydrogen each two or three years. The same can apply for the renewable energy. So I'm addressing mostly here the, the nuclear side of that because my interest is here at Idaho National Lab, the lead lab for nuclear energy development. But we need to get to a large scale. And fortunately, now we have industry coming and seeing that it can be done and realizing that they can decarbonize their products and their commodities with this clean hydrogen. So you know, it, the forces come together. Some of this is the social forces, understanding what we want to decarbonize. And so hydrogen can do that. It pulls us back to the clean energy sources. And so it just literally all comes together to create an economic model that makes sense. And that is how we overall have to mitigate that risk. It can't be one simple plant here or there. It has to be a collective effort. 
And I think we're on to that. Now, I'm speaking a lot here, so forgive me for that. But that brings us to the fourth assumption. And really, the fourth assumption is sometimes we have to have policies that are set by our legislative branch. We need to have funding to help us kickstart these programs to build the first of a kind, to build the first factory, to have the first project. And so, as you might be well aware, a couple of bills that are very important have been passed, which give us approximately $10 billion to start to build clean hydrogen hubs and also to build these manufacturing plants. And so we're now very blessed as a nation to have had the vision to set up and create some policies and to provide some funding to help us get over those first hurdles to get this started. And so that fourth assumption is uh, is now one that is being answered. And so in sum, all of this is coming together that uh, is beautifully working together so we can now go forth and have mitigated those, uh, all three risks, the economic risks, the technical risks, and, uh, and also the safety risks. Richard, I appreciate the thoughtful response. And let's make you think about, you know, each day walking into the office, what your position, your unique position is at the National Lab. So share with us what opportunities and freedoms do you and your team enjoy given the pursuit that you're trying to solve around the future of hydrogen energy and its key roles in the nuclear sector? Well, thank you for that question. You know, we are very blessed. Uh, we've been blessed to bring some of the greatest talent here to the Idaho National Lab. And DOE has attracted some of the greatest talent among the other national labs. We partner with uh, the other national labs in a program that we helped to get started called H2 at scale. And so, you know, my greatest pleasure is working with scientists at these other national labs as we have a common goal and a common vision and have been able to bring individuals that share that, that view of being able to have an impact. And the second part of this is, uh, it comes back to the funding. Congress has been generous, the programs have been generous, and, and we've had good program leads within the Department of Energy I could name many by, by individuals who at the federal level have gotten this. And so they've come out and they've invested in the national labs. And particularly, I'll talk to Idaho National Lab. They've helped us set up uh, systems for testing these electrolysis stacks, for testing these electrolysis systems. So what's happening here then is uh, commercial companies have a place where they can come to an independent, honest broker and have their technologies tested for hunters and even thousands of hours to prove that they're performing. You know, that independent third-party validation is very important. Not only are we doing the stacks, but we're doing the integrated systems. So a few companies have brought their integrated systems to Idaho National Lab, and we've been operating them for up to five, six, 7,000 hours to show that uh, indeed their technologies are robust and they're, and they're ready to be commercialized. So, you know, just being part of this is very exciting for us and to see our role and how this uh, benefits uh, our U.S. industries and, and eventually how it's going to be adopted and really impact, uh, you know, where we're at in terms of our national energy security. Well, that's really eye-opening for us. So thank you for taking us uh, inside your office, getting a glimpse of what you're doing. So, Richard, we now want to shift to what we call the lightning round, which gives us an opportunity to learn a little bit more about you, the person, rather than you, the professional. We have uh, five questions. Please you keep your responses to a one word or phrase. Are you ready? 
I am ready. Let's go. Okay. Favorite snack food? Unbuttered popcorn. As someone embedded in the world of nuclear, give us your three-word review of the movie Oppenheimer. Educational, inspiring, and I would say sobering. Do you have any hidden talents? Old-fashioned photography. Who were your role models growing up, and who are they now? Well, obviously my parents. A few high school teachers that inspired me to think about systems, some religious leaders, but especially two professors, uh, one in my undergraduate work and one in my graduate studies who inspired me and pushed me as far as they, they could. But now, really, my mentors are my colleagues. I mentioned them at other national labs, but I would like to call out one individual, Amgad Elgoini, doctorate at Argonne National Laboratory, one of their fellows, a gentleman and a scholar, and uh, I'd like to be like him. What are you most motivated by? Well, the thrill of learning, you know, the thrill of applying knowledge, the thrill of working with others, and just really being at a lab and working in a place where we can make a difference. That was a nice job navigating our lightning round. In reward, we want to give you the final word. So with uh, utility leaders and other stakeholders listening to this episode on or around National Hydrogen and Fuel Cell Day, what's the resounding message you hope sticks with them about the work being done in this realm? Well, I would like to say that I'm a believer in nuclear energy. And I believe that the current fleet it can be operated and used to help us create new energy currencies, that being hydrogen, as we talk about this on the, and honored on Hydrogen Day. And it's exciting to believe and understand that uh, there's a, a new generation of nuclear reactors that's forthcoming, that'll even be safer, that will address a lot of the concerns maybe we collectively have as a society. And so it's enjoyable to be part of that rollout. And maybe we're going to change the course of history here with clean energy, and I certainly believe nuclear energy will be a strong part of that. Well, we've interviewed a number of people from the INL, and they've always delivered, and you have continued that tradition, Richard. So thank you very much for sharing your wisdom and insights. And we want to thank you for your time. Keep up the great work and uh, wish you lots of continued success on behalf of our country and, and the planet. Thank you very much. Godspeed to you as well. You can always reach Richard through the Energy Central platform where he welcomes your questions and comments. And we also want to give a shout out of thanks to the podcast sponsors that made today's episode possible. Thanks to West Monroe. West Monroe works with the nation's largest electric, gas, and water utilities in their telecommunication, grid modernization, and digital and workforce transformations. West Monroe brings a multidisciplinary team that blends utility, operations, and technology expertise to address modernizing aging infrastructure, advisory on transportation electrification, ADMS deployments, data analytics, and cybersecurity. And once again, I'm your host, Jason Price. Plug in and stay fully charged in the discussion by hopping into the community at energycentral.com. And we'll see you next time at the Energy Central Power Perspectives Podcast.